Hey everyone, this is Prashant and I'll be your host for the VC10X podcast and today we have Yash Patel with us. Yash is a general partner at Telestra Ventures where he leads consumer tech investing efforts with an emphasis on esports, gaming, social media, e-commerce, web3 and SaaS. Yash has sourced and led Telestra Ventures investments in big commerce, Snapchat, Skills, Near, MPL among several others. In this episode, we talk about how Yash makes investment decisions what are network effects, perspective on esports and gaming sectors, investing in an esports team as a VC fund, why they are super bullish on crypto, exciting portfolio companies and lots more. So without wasting any time, let's dive straight in. Hey Ish, so good to have you on the VC 10X podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Prasad. Yeah, it's my pleasure hosting you. And just to start things off, can we have some background, your story and how you started investing? Yeah, happy to do it. Um, I've been at Tulsa Ventures for, gosh, um, just over nine years now, right? So I'm either doing something well or I'm doing something not so well, is what I like to say. Uh, at least in tech and venture capital, it, it seems like um, you know most people uh, tend to change uh, firms every few years. Uh, prior to Telstra Ventures, I was at an ad network uh, called Ad Knowledge, which was a venture-backed ad network that had raised uh, money from TCV Technology Crossover Ventures, JMI Equity, and a host of other investors. And prior to that, I was in technology investment banking. Um, across my kind of career, I've always had sort of um, exposure and interest in partnering with a lot of entrepreneurs, particularly more innovator types, um, either through investment banking or as an operator, when I was um, at, at Knowledge running corporate development and strategy for this ad network, um, or more recently at Telstra Ventures as a uh, venture partner uh, investing in all sorts of interesting businesses. Uh, my story really started where, you know, I basically was exposed to a lot of the companies that I previously worked at through my previous job. So when I was in investment banking, I was connected to the ad network that I eventually became head of corporate debt and strategy. And while I was at the ad network, um, we actually learned, um, you know, we, we were going through a sale process uh, to try to sell the company. And I actually ended up meeting with Telstra, um, which is where I now work. But this is more the corporate development and M&A side of Telstra. And so I got to know Telstra, which was launching a venture capital fund, a corporate venture fund at the time uh, with my partner, Mark Sherman, who was leading that charge. Um, ironically, uh, or coincidentally, just down the block here in Nattown, San Francisco for me. So I got to know Mark uh, better through a mutual acquaintance and really liked the idea of having impact at the sort of ground stage of sort of building a ever kind of globally enduring uh, venture capital fund. Um, and at the same time, you know, having a broader exposure to diverse individuals, um, you know, folks, uh, entrepreneurs and, and others within the ecosystem versus sort of, um, you know, more narrowed, siloed, Kind of uh, you know exposure that you have as an operator or even in investment banking for that matter. So all of that really appealed to me and um, and really started investing right in January 2014 and haven't looked back since. Yeah, that's an exciting story. And uh, since you're investing for so many years, for nine years now, uh, how has your personal investment thesis evolved? What do you uh, look for in companies while you're trying to make this investment decision? Yeah, more generally, you know, I'm really looking for post product market fit. Um, traction, right? And so evidence of that is critical first and foremost. Uh, I'd say the team is extremely important. Uh, many of these startups we invest in, 
you know, it's not up and to the right in sort of a hockey stick type of curve. It really is a roller coaster. And, you know, some of the best outcomes we've had were not so obvious um, in the early days. So ensuring that we've got a very strong team that has some sort of unique insight into a pain point that they're solving in an industry. And it doesn't necessarily have to be an entrepreneur from that industry. Sometimes we see um, entrepreneurs from other industries kind of applying their sort of, uh, you know, investigative techniques and, and unique kind of thoughts to a brand new industry. And, and I quite welcome those type of entrepreneurs as well. And then for me, you know, at least a million in ARR, if you're sort of an enterprise SaaS company would be ideal, you know, usually three to five Xing year on year growth. And so that's been, um, you know, kind of the key criteria. I'd sort of add that one final piece, which is less focused on specific companies or entrepreneurs and products is more at a high level from a macro perspective, some sort of change event that we believe will drive some sort of new, uh, some new growth, right? Whether that was as an example in 2007, 2008, Apple's launch of the smartphone, uh, the iPhone, which opened up the whole mobile economy. We saw Airbnb and Uber and many other mobile uh, apps um, emerge out of that whole macro change of it. So um, right now we're hearing a lot about generative AI, right? And that could be a very interesting. And so I'd, I'd sort of add some sort of change event is really important in addition to kind of the team, the product market fit, and, um, and, and you know, sort of having a strong narrative and conviction. Got it. Uh, that sounds like a series A kind of a stage. Is that where you typically come in? Yeah, it, exactly. So I'd say series A, B, and occasionally C, but really... Our sweet spot is Series A and B, and and typically we're investing anywhere from five to ten million dollars uh, per check, leading or co-leading. Uh, we prefer to have um, a bit more equity earlier on and continue to follow on and support our portfolio companies as they go through further rounds of funding at the B, C, D, and ideally up until a trade sale or IPO, some sort of liquidity event. So that's generally our sweet spot. Got it. And uh, while I was researching for this episode, I, I went through your LinkedIn profile and I saw this term there uh, that you are look, looking for network effects in companies that you're investing in. And I'm personally very fascinated by this concept. I've uh, watched a few videos from this, this venture firm called NFX that is kind of like focused on the whole uh, network effects thing. And it's an exciting concept. So uh, since you are also a believer of that concept. Can you uh, throw more light on what are network effects and how do we really see them in action in the startups of today's world? Yeah, you know, at a at a very high level, network effects effectively are sort of the value of a good or service increasing when you have more customers or more people being part of that ecosystem, right? And so a very basic, simple example of that is sort of in the, you know, ride share business where you've got Uber and Lyft and sort of, you know, seeing the value as an end customer by ordering an Uber or Lyft increasing as you have more supply or more drivers that are onboarded, right? But you can't really have one without the other, right? So if you've got too many drivers and too little demand or too much demand and too little drivers, um, it doesn't work out. And typically you've got this kind of cold start problem or sort of a, you know, chicken and egg type of issue. And so I think many, um, you know, companies do solve for this, particularly marketplace business models where you sort of see, you know, folks start with the supply side first and start to build out, you know, a strong kind of, a, you know, robust growth network there. 
and then move into the demand side or others, depending on the industry you're attacking, start with the demand side and then get that very sticky to kind of bring that to the supply side. And so, you know, for me, there's, there's just been so many great examples of great, you know, tech enabled businesses that have, uh, you know, really grown, uh, dramatically through network effects of, you know, we talked about Uber and Lyft, Airbnb, but you know, things like, um, you know, StockX or Goat and the sneaker collectible, you know, marketplace sort of disrupting what eBay, you know, it's historically owned in the secondhand collect kind of collectible industry. And, um, and then I'd also add that network effects are also very, um, apparent and can be common in sort of the enterprise side of the world, right? So there are enterprise software companies where, you know, many of them leverage data, uh, to improve their own end product or service. And, to the extent that they can bring on more customers and then hence have more data, they can improve that product or service, um, you know, across all their customer bases. And so you sort of see, you know, um, you know, network effects really uh, at at scale in, in many companies, particularly AI data companies that sort of, um, you know, do harness really interesting, you know, uh, data from their own end customers that might be first party data uh, or even kind of third party data as well. So that's pretty exciting from our perspective, our perspective across both enterprise and kind of consumer. Right. That's uh, that's like a good view of what network effects is, and I would familiarize our audience with what it really is, since we haven't talked about it on the podcast yet. Uh, and uh, another thing that you focus on, uh, like while you're investing at uh, at Delstra Ventures, uh, you are kind of focused on esports and gaming as well. So uh, how do you see that sector shaping up uh, and what's the future potential of that, of the esports and gaming industry? Yeah, I mean, for 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 us and, and myself in particular, you know, we've just seen massive amounts of value created in gaming, particularly mobile gaming more recently. And, and if you look at just taking a step back, if you look at the Apple App Store, the Google Play Store, you look at the vast majority, you know, billions of dollars of revenues of GMV that flows through that platform primarily comes from mobile gaming. And um, and so that's not something you can ignore, right? And these are everything from kind of tier one, you know, kind of games such as, you know, PUBG on mobile to kind of indie games. Um, you know, there is a lot of mindshare by consumers, not just kind of younger teens, uh, but consumers across all demographics spending time on mobile games. And so for for me, you know, I really got interested in mobile gaming kind of in 2016 and 2017 as a uh, venture investor uh, and actually ended up investing in a few companies, more mobile gaming platform companies such as um, Mobile Premier League, which is a, a, a skill-based mobile gaming platform out of India uh, focused on card games and daily fantasy across cricket as well as other games. Uh, we've also invested in a company called Skills, which is sort of the analog or equivalent in the U.S. Uh, we've also invested in the world's largest esports team called Team Solo Mid out of uh, Los Angeles. And so, you know, each one of these investments has sort of a common thesis from my perspective, which is, you know, me as a gaming investor, esports investor, I I tend to focus on platforms as an investment, right? So, I think it investing in gaming studios is a very interesting endeavor and there's a lot of great venture studios um seed investors um series b and c later stage investors that do a good job investing in game studios i personally tend to find that a bit tough because it's a hit driven business and it's investing in not just art 
but not just science, but also art. And that's a little bit different from sort of our software kind of enabled um, tech investing thesis here at Tulsa Ventures. And so what we focus on are sort of the picks and shovels of a lot of the gaming industry. And so in these two you know examples I just gave, Skills and uh, mobile primarily, they're effectively offering sort of infrastructure to allow third-party mobile gaming developers to kind of plug into you know, their platforms and monetize more easily through kind of cash prize competitions, right? And so they kind of are this one-stop shop that allows, you know, other gaming platforms to actually not just monetize their own users on on the, on here, but also cross-pollinate users across different games. And so kind of tying back to what we just talked about, which is network effects, both those platforms drive strong network effects. The more gaming publishers you have integrated in there, the more users that you can cross-pollinate users across different games, uh, the better it becomes. So those are two platforms we invested in. And then the final piece, Team Solo Mid, is very interesting because it is one of the largest esports teams in the world, but it is more than that. It, it is launching sort of an, it's the best way to think of it is almost an umbrella holding corporation that has different revenue streams, whether it's e-commerce merchandise, brand sponsorships, or even, you know, appealing to sort of amateur gamers with their own AI analytics platform to help them get better. But it's fundamentally all driven by their esports uh, influencers who drive that platform kind of cohesiveness. So does that all sort of make sense? It does, it does. And uh, that's very interesting. And me being in India, I have definitely heard of MPL. So Mobile Premier League is actually kind of known or marketed as MPL here. And it's it's like closely built on the back of uh, like uh, uh, tournaments like IPL, which is like the greatest cricket uh, spectacle around the world. Uh, yeah, absolutely. You build fantasy teams around there, and it's it's not the only player out here. It's they're like multiple fantasy uh, players, it's like Dream Eleven, a lot of these players. But it's 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 good to see how these have come up and are like building around this big league that's there. Uh, so that's definitely exciting to watch. Uh, and another interesting aspect that you mentioned that you have bought a kind of stake in an esports team, a venture fund investing in a sports team of any kind it's kind of interesting because you are typically typically investing in startups and they have their own growth horizon that okay you expect that maybe they will 10x maybe they will go bust right but how do you look at investing in sports teams uh and in, in your case in esports team uh what all factors did you evaluate like is this a growing theme esports what can be the potential win? What are the future prospects? Is there an exit potential? And if there is, then what that is, right? Yeah, it's a great question. And a lot of people sort of, um, you know, we're a bit surprised when we made a venture investment in a team, right? And so I'd sort of start off by saying, you know, when we make any investment, um, whether it's a consumer or enterprise uh, startup, a company that we're looking at, we want to generate five to 10x returns, money multiple, right? And we want really good IRRs as well. And so any investment we look at generally has the potential to achieve that five to 10X return. And so when we looked at TSM or an esports team, we were looking at not just the team itself, but actually the broader influencer network and the eyeballs that they were commanding globally. And when we looked at them versus many of the most popular uh, traditional sports teams in the world, whether you're talking about the Golden State Warriors and the NBA in basketball, or you're talking about the New York Yankees in baseball, 
where you're talking about Arsenal in the English Premier League, right? We saw that the fan, uh, the fan bases and the actual affinity and love and the emotion that fans had was actually, if not bigger than uh, many of these traditional sports teams, uh, but magnitudes larger. And, um, and so for us, we saw that this esports team and most importantly, this valuable asset, this asset being the eyeballs and the love that these fans had could be an interesting platform to build ancillary services that we could monetize from. And so the most obvious kind of um, low-hanging fruit was brand sponsorship. So so companies that are looking to you know sponsor the team through jersey sponsorships, through Twitch ads, uh, through other ad inventory that is exclusively only available to the team. And that is kind of the low-hanging fruit for many esports teams. What makes uh, TSM more interesting is they also had a network of websites where many amateur gamers would go to these websites and basically try to improve their gameplay. So TSM has now launched another product called Lists.gg, which is an AI-based analytics platform that helps me as a player, if I'm an amateur gamer, get better with my my gameplay in League of Legends, um, which is one of their top games out there. And so the synergies with the team to kind of promote it with their own esports stars um, allowed them to kind of grow this product and this revenue base much faster than if it was an individual startup all by itself. So, you know, for us, when we looked at kind of the asset here that was most valuable that could drive a venture scale return, it was those eyeballs. It was those digital eyeballs. They were globally, um, globally uh, uh, all over the world and not kind of tied to one city like a traditional sports team and uh, very loyal and very monetizable um, from many perspectives. And and so, you know, we, we sort of have the influencer network, the brand sponsorships, you've got the Blitz.gg platform, you've got the websites, you've got also e-commerce merchandise, right? So many people buy the TSM apparel uh, as a lifestyle um, kind of play. So for us, it wasn't just one kind of you know, revenue stream or service. It was really the platform underlying it that we could launch these multiple businesses into. That made this a venture style of investment. Very interesting. Thanks for sharing that. And another sector that you're kind of focused on is uh, crypto. And that's an interesting one uh, for multiple reasons. One is because right now we are seeing a kind of downturn in the industry and another because you were actually an investor in FTX and we all know what happened to that. So, what would be your thoughts on this sector and what do you think really happened with FTX and does that really impact your investment strategy at all in crypto? Yeah, I'd, I'd sort of say um, for us, crypto is more of a focus on blockchain technology and, and what that enables, right? And so sometimes, um, you know, I think in the media, uh, I think sort of there's a, a, a sort of an interchangeable or sort of confusion between crypto as a speculator that a financial investor might actually buy, you know, crypto for versus the actual um, blockchain technology that unlocks a lot of interesting um, utility and applications that we sort of look at. And so when we kind of look at blockchain tech, you know, we look at all sorts of, you know, interesting companies that add real utility and entertainment without necessarily touting that they're built on blockchain technology. And, you know, for us, it's just like any other startup, right? When we look at a startup, we don't call a startup that happens to be built on Amazon Web Services and with PHP, a AWS or PHP startup, right? We actually focus on the utility and application and call it 
for what it is, whether it's an Airbnb type of application or it's a generative AI company that's um, helping with marketing optimization, we focus on the utility and application. And the same thing applies for us with blockchain enabled applications. And and so when when we look at, I, I sort of call it, um, you know, blockchain tech, we're very much focused not on web two and not necessarily on web three, but at the intersection of the two, which is what I call web two and a half. And the reason for that is Everyone knows how big Web2 is, right? With Meta, Face, uh, Facebook, Google, Instagram, Snapchat, TikTok. You know, you've got billions of users out there. Web3 right now is still in its infancy. And when we to look at pure kind of Web3 uh, kind of digital wallets, um, there are maybe, you know, two and a half to three million daily active Web3 digital wallets out there at any one time. Uh, maybe even less given sort of, a, you know, the more recent bearish sentiment out there. To us, that's not sustainable at this point as a venture investment. But what is interesting is the intersection of Web 2 and Web 3. And what I mean by that is effectively seeing companies leverage blockchain technology um, for their own end customers in a way where their own end customers feel like it's native, authentic, and they don't even need to know that it's built on blockchain. And we've seen this with a lot of larger companies like Starbucks launching their loyalty NFTs, or Shopify enabled their cars, uh, their their merchants to launch token gated commerce, or um, StockX, uh, the sneaker collectible company I just mentioned, you know, launching NFTs to kind of certify um, ownership of collectible sneakers that they're selling through their platform, etc. So we see a lot of interesting use cases. Now, would we consider those end users of Starbucks customers or StockX buyers or um, or, 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 you know, Shopify kind of end customers uh, of their end e-commerce merchants. Do we consider them Web3? No, not really. But they are Web2.5. And, and that's a much larger market for us uh, that is very interesting when we talk about blockchain and, and, and sort of crypto than, um, than sort of just the pure kind of more niche, you know, Web3 audience as it is today. So uh, that I, I'd sort of say that for us is, is really interesting. I mean, there, there's even been more recent news around Amazon watching NFTs uh, by the spring of this year across its millions of users. Um, even the uh, Department of Motor Vehicles in California is exploring uh, blockchain technology for you know use cases around car ownership or transferring ownership between a buyer and seller of a car. So we're seeing these very historically risk uh, averse organizations adopting or dabbling in blockchain tech in a way that is pretty interesting. And, and we want to be investing in those startups that are enabling that as well. Absolutely. And uh, and that's a very valid point there about uh, blockchain not being used to like as a catchphrase or using to market the tech, whatever product you're building. And I think that can be done in the case of AI. Uh, than in the case of blockchain. Because in the case of AI, uh, if you, you can say that AI, you can write your blog using AI, and the moment you get in, you get that instant value proposition that, okay, like, this is what AI can do. In the blockchain, the value isn't that instant. You don't in get that instant hit, okay, that this is blockchain, and this is the special value that this has. And for that reason, uh, these products, I believe, should not be marketed as blockchain. They should be like normal products, but at the back end, they should be using blockchain. And 
it should be there on the website like somewhere at the bottom that should not be the main value proposition because i think people are not going to come to you for the blockchain technology because the value add isn't that immediate right it's very vague a absolutely it's very vague right now um and it's not intuitive or obvious and rather than focus on you know what uh the back end is built on focus on the utility and the application and that will drive more adoption um you know longer term and we've actually seen many uh startups that are built on blockchain remove blockchain um from a branding perspective um because of sort of the uh confusion between crypto as a financial instrument or sort of a, as a financial kind of speculator type of uh you know uh i guess investment versus the actual technology behind crypto which is very different right absolutely and uh, let, let's talk about ftx for a bit because everyone for a while and including myself thought for a while that they were kind of the invincible that there is no way that uh, this company doesn't work right it at at one point there was like there's so much that noise built around it and maybe that was something with uh maybe the charisma of, of the leader that they had right so what what are your views on what happened with ftx and does that have any implications on how you're investing into maybe crypto startups yeah i i think um you know with any company that kind of goes through turmoil like that um you know the reality is uh it all comes back to people right people are running these organizations and so um it is very clear in retrospect that you know uh the folks that were running the organization at FTX were were likely not the best equipped to kind of do that and so i don't think that has anything um yeah and sort of uh as it relates to crypto or, or i said it, i should kind of call it blockchain investing i think many of the issues that became apparent um with ftx were sort of issues that you've seen since the dawn of time right it's it's kind of stuff that we've seen on wall street and centralized finance uh for a long time it doesn't really um you know sort of uh, it doesn't really affect sort of the value that distributed ledgers built on blockchains um actually provide for the various use cases I talked about um, earlier. So I think ultimately, you know, when we make an investment, we just want to ensure that, you know, you're partnering with the right people. And so for us, um, you know, we just, uh, you know, try to focus on great product market fit, um, great people, and some sort of change event. And so that change event around blockchain technology or web two and a half adoption, I think that's still there. And that's something that we're seeing you know, many startups, um, you know, start to embrace in a, in a much bigger way. One of the things that we also do is we actually, you know, through our data science team here at Tulsa Ventures, we track many of the top open source um, uh, crypto or blockchain projects out there that developers are, um, you know, leveraging or, or contributing to. And we've seen a lot of developer activity, you know, not decrease as sort of fast as the price of crypto has, which means that the fundamentals of, you know, the builders out there, um, you know, contributing to blockchain tech is still pretty strong. And so for me, you know, FTX has no bearing on sort of the developer community that is continuing to build, tinker with Ethereum and, and other kind of interesting blockchains and layer two kind of protocols that they're sort of um, expecting, you know, to, uh, to, to build, you know, really value added applications for not just the Web3 community, but for my mom my dad, your mom, your parents, um, you know, the broader mainstream audience. Right, absolutely. And I agree with that, that blockchain technology in itself is actually 
very valuable technology and i think definitely very valuable startups and companies of the future will be built on that uh, and i'm very bullish on that so uh now next talking about uh, some of your exciting portfolio companies so if you'd like to mention some of your companies that you've invested in that you think might be the disruptors of tomorrow uh i'd love to hear about them yeah sure um i i think one that comes top of mind is is a company called super uh super.com is their domain they actually recently ran a uh, super bowl ad actually during the super bowl which uh makes a lot of sense with the with super and super bowl uh in that play on words but you know Super used to be known as Snap Commerce, which was one of the um, larger hotel booking engines uh, through messaging uh, in the West. And we invested in the Series A uh, round of what that was then known as Snap Travel. And um, at the beginning, uh, Snap Travel was able to find hotel deals that were 30 to 50% cheaper than any other sort of sites on on average right so booking.com expedia kayak make my trip in india they were always able to find uh cheaper hotels at some of the top you know resorts or hotels out there four seasons etc the reason for that was they actually had an ai chatbot that was basically communicating with consumers through facebook messenger primarily or sms which is where their mainly millennial audience would actually book these hotels and there was a interesting loophole where snap travel was able to secure hotel deals that a physical brick and mortar travel agent um that you typically see can kind of get at those discounted rates and 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 it's always interesting right whenever you go with a travel agent somehow they're always able to get a much better deal than you can find online the reason for that is that one-to-one relationship that many of these hotels reserve this inventory for uh and Snap Travel at the time was able to effectively be a virtual kind of a concierge or a travel agent using AI and this chatbot technology. And so fast forward to today, um, that company has continued to grow very fast with their core kind of travel engine and much cheaper hotel rates, but they've also moved into fintech. And their goal is to basically help their users who tend to be primarily in the U.S., and tend to be of a lower kind of credit score type of demographic, basically save them more money and effectively help them live a better life financially. And so what they're going to launch very soon is a uh, is a credit card. So it's a credit and a virtual debit card combined together to help these folks that typically don't have access to credit build credit and actually improve their financial kind of uh, situation. And so this credit card is launching very soon and it very much um, is, is you're able to use it within the ecosystem uh, and buy, you know, inventory of hotels, hotel rooms, et cetera, on the Snap Travel kind of platform itself. And the reason why I kind of bring this up as an interesting company is effectively what they're evolving into is what could be an interesting super app in the West. In Asia, we've heard about WeChat, Kakao, Gojek in, in Indonesia, um, many others out there. WhatsApp arguably could be a super app with Reliance and Facebook in India at some point. In the West, you haven't had that sort of dynamic at play, partly because the big incumbents like Facebook, Google are under a lot of regulatory scrutiny. For us, we think that there are going to be multiple startups that will emerge offering interesting services to their users um, across uh, different areas, whether it's e-commerce, fintech, payments, 
gaming, messaging, we're going to see some crossover here. And there's going to be a few interesting companies that could evolve into what we could see as a super app um, moving forward. And so that super app concept, I'm really bullish on for the West. It has always been talked about, but sometimes timing is everything. And right now it seems like an interesting uh, vacuum for kind of a uh, startups such as super.com to kind of uh, move into this space. Right, absolutely. And uh, it, there was definitely interesting company and I would uh, definitely mention that in the show notes below for our audience who may want to check that out. Uh, now moving on to our rapid fire round wherein I'll ask you five quick questions uh, about the fund and you have to give five quick answers. Sounds good. Sure. Sounds great. All right. So the first one goes, what are the sectors and regions you invest in? Yeah, so we invest primarily in North America. About 70% of our deals are North America based just by the sheer kind of density of uh, talent and, and, and sort of the lab here. About 30% uh, is kind of rest of the world. That's mainly India, Southeast Asia. And we kind of look at that more opportunistically. In terms of sectors, we're very thematically focused. Um, so everything from consumer tech uh, to enterprise software, cybersecurity, climate tech, um, creator economy, uh, and blockchain, as I mentioned, these are all, you know, very interesting kind of areas, uh, you know, for us. Absolutely. And what's the typical stage of investment? Yeah, great question. So typically it's series A and B, and usually it's five to $10 million. We prefer to lead or co-lead each investment that we make, uh, but we can be part of a larger syndicate of investors. I think as long as we have enough skin in the game and, you know, we really get along with entrepreneur and have conviction in sort of their thesis, um, and a line there, I think we can be flexible. But in general, we prefer to lead or co-lead at the A and B. Absolutely. And uh, where can founders pitch in case there is a direct way to pitch? Yeah, it's a it's a great question. I think we're open to hearing pitches. Um, one of the things that helps us kind of sort out the top of funnel when we get you know thousands of pitches a year is really having some sort of validation from uh, oh you know sort of anybody within our network. And what I mean by that is. A lot of times we get referrals from our own founders or our own portfolio companies. Those tend to be really um, interesting. Other seed stage investors that are maybe a bit, um, you know, uh, before us in terms of uh, the scale, uh, referrals from them are very helpful. And then other operators in tech, right? So if you've got great product managers, CTOs out there that sort of um, recommend a startup or a person that we should meet, I think that helps because for us, I think our biggest, um, you know, sort of, uh, challenge is always trying to find conviction um, as quickly as possible when you've got so many um, deals that you're looking at. And any data point or signal, and in this case, a referral is a very strong signal, helps us, uh, you know, narrow down and actually, um, you know, get more conviction to spending more time with an entrepreneur. Absolutely. So, bomb intro is the way to go. And uh, last question uh, is. Uh, where can our listeners follow you? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, our website, TelstraVentures.com, is a, is a great start. We've got our own kind of podcast there, and we've got our In Conversation series where we talk with other entrepreneurs within our own portfolio as well as um, others within the broader tech ecosystem. So I'd say that's great to start. And then for myself personally, I spend a lot of time on LinkedIn and so put out you know interesting tidbits of uh, nuggets of information that I find interesting and also kind of talk about some of my portfolio companies. So LinkedIn is a great way to follow myself. Great. I'll make sure to put all those links in the show notes below so that our listeners can get there easily. Thank you so much for making time for this. Yes, it, it was great talking to you and happy investing. Yeah, thank you so much, Prashant. And uh, happy to answer any other questions as they arise and uh, look forward to it. 
Absolutely. Thank you. Great. Thank you.